2: Hello and welcome to the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Close Reads and I'm David Kern. joined as always here on Close Reads by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina, Tim, how's it going?
1: Hey David, it's going good.
0: Going good, yeah.
2: (laughs) And uh, today is Friday, December 30th. This will be uh, put live, this episode will be live on uh, January 2nd, uh, Monday, January 2nd. Um, so we are right around that New Year time. So I'll just say Happy New Year to both of you. How are your uh, How are your Christmases? How was your Christmas? How do I ask that question? Christmas eye. Yeah. How are your Christmas eye? <laughs> how are you, How are your Christmas eye? Christmasy. Remember how we're trying
0: to not be pretentious on this show? Yeah.
2: yeah. Wait. Wait. <laughs> when was that ever a thing? thirty
0: <laughs> I sneak. I, I was in the fine print of my contract.
2: Oh. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you You know never to, to care about what the fine print says. Uh, Angelina, how was your Christmas? I mean, new Christmas, first Christmas in a new home.
0: First Christmas in a new home. It was a lot of fun. I actually had it with your family. I was so disappointed that you were a no show. You know, you just fled when you heard I was coming.
2: Yeah, something like that.
0: <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. Then I got the flu, so it's been rather miserable since then. But, uh, I think I'm on the mend, sort of. So anything I say outrageous today, I'm just going to blame on a low grade fever and pretty, you know, loopy, flu loopiness. I'm flu drunk. That's going to be my defense today.
1: Forgive me. I'm flu drunk. <laughs> smart, smart.
2: <laughs> Tim, how are you?
1: Uh, mine was good. My, I take a long Christmas break away from Gutenberg. I come home to Atlanta, and I get to see my family and my friends. So I'm usually – Christmas Day was very pleasant. The joy for me is I get to make um, – around seeing all these friends that have stayed with me despite the fact that for nine years I've been absent from you know the city that we grew up in together
2: hmm. so you're saying they uh care care about you or put up with you or something but the, they put
1: up with me they stay yeah. friends with me despite yeah. the long absence yeah
0: See, I thought the conclusion to that story was you're the kind of friend that people can only handle once a year
1: oh man that may be the case <laughs> maybe actually that's the reason why they're so Generous and kind during because they know
0: they don't have to do year. this again,
1: right? They're like, oh, okay,
0: I've had all the Macintosh I can handle now, <laughs> until next year,
2: right? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a more likely explanation, yeah, it probably is. <laughs> well, we are here to talk about end of the year stuff. Uh, this is a podcast about reading about books, so we are going to discuss um, the things that we read this year. Uh, on this podcast and otherwise, um, we're going to talk about some of our favorite things that we read and, uh, you know, we want to hear from you as well. So head over to that, uh, handy dandy new Facebook page for close reads. And, um, I posted a comment on there that, uh, asks what were your, some of your favorite things that you read this year. And uh, several people have been responding to that. So if you want to jump in on that conversation, you can head over there. Uh, if you go to Facebook, just click on the, t- the groups tab and then uh, type in Close Reads Podcast or something like that. And it should come up.
0: I love that one person responded uh, with a question on how to interpret your question because I laughed and I thought, oh, if only you knew how much David loves having questions interpreted in multiple ways. Like you love the sociological aspect. So how are people gonna interpret my open-ended <laughs> question? So that, you know, that person made your day, and she was feeling embarrassed. But I was like, oh no, that was a plus.
2: Yeah. So, so head over to. Uh to facebook to to join that um to join that group if you want to you know continue the conversations and can you know discuss some of the things you hear on the podcast Uh, also um this uh will be the first episode that we are going to post on the new um solo feed for close reads so we'll continue to post shows on the main podcast network um feed you know on itunes or stitcher or wherever so if you want to you know just subscribe one time and have all the Cersei shows there. You know you can continue to do that, but if you want to have a separate feed for close reads, either just because you want to have them separated or because you really only listen to close reads, then uh, that'll be available too. So in your in whatever app you're using, you know the the uh, Apple Podcast app or Stitcher or whatever it is, uh, just search um, for close reads, and that should pop up. Um, it might take a day or two to to populate um, the first episode, um, and we will not be able to post. The, all the old archived episodes but you can still find those on the uh, just on the regular old feed or on the website um, under the multimedia tab so um, that's a little bit of business out of the way real quick
0: on the i say i don't i don't have mac so i don't use itunes so i have a question um if if let's say a new listener finds us on on our new feed will it say something to indicate that they can find previous episodes somewhere else
2: yeah yeah we can well it's going to have a description there yep Alright, cool. Um, you know iTunes is available on more than Mac, right? Like you know you can download it to a PC.
0: Well, I know, but I <laughs> I have... Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't like iTunes. Please, we're not going to start off the new year with me like, you know, <laughs> getting on my soapbox against Apple. I have I, enough things to put my head on the chopping block for. Worry, I'm going to take it off for that.
2: I don't use iTunes at all for anything whatsoever in my life at all. So um, I'm with you on that. Okay, you guys. Let's talk books. Let's yeah, talk books. So, we've talked about several books this year. We focused uh, quite a bit on Pride and Prejudice, obviously, The Wind and the Willows, and uh, Jaber Crow. Those were, the, you know, and then and then here and there, a few short stories, like the one we did around Halloween time. So, I don't want to focus too much on the books that we read on this show because people generally know what we think of those books um, if they've been listening. You know. Oh
0: man, I was hoping if, just to recap my own thoughts about my <laughs> own thoughts. <laughs>
2: And if they if they haven't, yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, (laughs) If if uh, if they haven't listened, you can you know if you want to recap Angelina's thoughts, you can head back over to you know to the old episodes. Um, So I want to I want to hear more about what you guys were reading this year outside of the podcast. Now, uh, Tim, you've had a pretty hectic year with things at Gutenberg and uh, Angelina. You um, had a move and. all that kind of stuff going on and then I had a baby this year so um there's lots of reasons that you know we may have not read as much as we typically do in a year but I know that we still read some and I think it'll be fun to discuss you know what what we thought of yeah. those books. Uh, Tim and David
1: are we confining ourselves to books of literature or can we talk about books outside of of you know like narrative fiction? Oh for yeah for sure. Outside
2: okay. a- a- anything you know anything you want um and you know if i think that it's you know with outside the confines of, of whatever the parameters are that i'll make up as i go along then i'll let you know um okay tim i'd love, love to love hear...
0: the shifting <laughs> landscape of the rules of this show <laughs>
2: <laughs> well you know you got to kind of go with the flow uh so tim i'd love to hear without just naming titles like what was your reading life yeah. like the, in 2016 what, what was your reading uh, what was your experience I... with books
1: I had, this probably was the best year of reading that I've had, maybe since I can remember. I had, no, I'm dead serious. I had a string of about four hits, all back to back to back, completely different kind of genres of books. But I finished one and I thought, oh my goodness, that was so great. Oh, what can I read that will even compare to that? And then the next book that I read, it compared in quality. And then the next textbook so i had a superb year of reading Best year i've had in that i can remember
2: in terms of the quality of the books that you read in
1: terms of the quality of the books and also you know do you guys ever have those moments where you just think oh this is the book for me at this particular moment
0: oh yeah for sure you know
1: and i think all of the books that i this, this string of you know three or four books that i read all in a road they were just the exact right book for me at the exact right so moment. you
0: have a guardian angel librarian i apparently want apparently so
1: apparently so <laughs>
0: guiding your amazon mouse choices
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> right. did did you um how many books would you estimate that you read this year
1: does that include books that i read for close reads and books that i read for gutenberg
2: Yeah, yeah yeah i mean your job if your job is to read it still counts yeah.
1: Um Oh, that's a hard one. I, mean, I, like I would 20 guess 20 plus. Yeah, I'd guess 30 plus.
2: So, how many of those were outside of the job, either for the podcast or for Gutenberg? Like just purely for your own edification. No, actually, pleasure?
1: you know what? I need to say if I include work stuff, it's probably 50 plus. Okay. You know, but a lot of those I've read I've read before, so right, I just right. got done reading, you know. Whatever the the um, trial of Socrates, Plato's apology, and I've read it five times probably, but it still counts. Yeah, yeah. And I would say tw- probably twenty of those were curriculum reading.
2: Okay, that's pretty good. That's a pretty solid year. Um, so, Angelina, what was your experience with reading like this year, in, in terms of quality, in terms of uh, in terms of you know quantity as well, and realizing, of course, that yeah, like you said, you had a move and a lot of hectic stuff going on in your life, so. Um, this but, is, yeah, this was this is, one you, of the you, weirdest
0: you, years I've ever had.
2: Yeah, you seemed like you were a little anxious about me asking this question coming into it. So we're just going to I go was, ahead. It's a, it's and a, I
0: felt like there was—I felt like there were negotiations before the show about whether or not I was going to be asked something like this. And boom, here I am, bus coming along, and you threw me <laughs> under it. Uh, it, it, it its
2: a—it's a judge. It's a—you know—it's a no judge zone. Don't worry, we're not going to judge you. It's
0: okay. Because before the show started, I said I was going to be the every man. Uh, um, that you know, I'm I'm I feel like okay, I'm having this scene, you know, at the end of Amadeus when Salieri comes out, it's like I am the king of mediocrity. Like I, <laughs> this is what I'm going to be in this episode. Anybody else who's having this moment where you're looking at everybody's Facebook post and they're like, I read 472 books this year and I exceeded my goal, and you want to like go in the corner and cry and just be like I'm a loser because I don't read. I am gonna represent you today on this show because this is how I feel right now. Just listening to Tim talk about his reading year, like I, like when David said for a number I was like hey hey how's that how's that from a state of rest I feel anxiety when you ask (laughs) for my number like we're not supposed to quantify things here I say as I have my numbered journal of exactly how many books I read this year however (laughs) um it was just a really weird year for me um one I had to come to terms with the fact that if I was writing a book that was necessarily going to mean I read less other things right and that was was a hard thing for me to come to terms with. I kept trying to, you know, have my normal reading life and then also write a book. That that was not compatible. Um, so it was just really weird in, in, in a lot of different ways. One of the things that happened was uh, in 2015, I had made a, a point of asking my friends for, like, who are the new authors? Because I, I, I suffer from reverse chronological snobbery, right? If the author isn't alive, I don't want to touch it. Like, it took forever for someone to convince me to read Wendell Berry, seriously. Uh so I'm. I, would, I thought, okay, you know, I'm. I'm going to try to give these modern authors a, a try. And so, 2015 was about me engaging with a lot of new, new people that I had not previously uh, read. 2016, I had decided, was going to be the year of the reread. Right, like I was going to deliberately mm. try to reread some things that had been meaningful to me in the past. What ended up happening, though, was so bizarre. Because for the first time ever, what ended up happening is this was a year in which not only I read things that I had read before, but I read the same book multiple times in the same year. And this happened tons. It was just one of those things. So, like, I taught Pride and Prejudice in the spring and read it, and then we decided to do a podcast on it. So I was literally reading all these books just a few months apart. I read Beowulf in back-to-back months, Paralandra, like, three months apart, Sir Gowan, like, four months apart. Like all these, I was reading all these books in the same year. Um, which I had never done before, but it was so, so fascinating to me to see that. Because, you know, we always talk about how when you revisit a book, you're a different person, right? And it yeah. means something different to you. Uh, that still held up when you read a book a month later. Like, how is that even possible? Wow. <laughs> you know, that, that like, um, so, yeah, I just, it, man, I read so many things uh, multiple times. That That was what my year was like, so... David, are you even there? I'm hearing that sound again. I'm here. Okay. Um, So, yeah, it was a a strange year of reading the same books over and over. Um, And I did read a few new things here or there, but mostly it was just uh, rereading things and uh, just thinking about that experience, especially when it was back to back like that.
2: So in the end, how many books would you say you read this year? Since you're gonna be the everyman and represent people who are <laughs> Okay, read
0: I'm gonna be the everyman, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that it was only thirty-seven books, and I'm really embarrassed about that.
2: Thirty
1: thirty. Okay, Angelina, Angelina I think you need to do like a reevaluation about things that you get embarrassed about.
0: <laughs> no, Come on. If you look at people's Facebook numbers. 37 is paltry. Like, okay, so here's the thing. Like, I'm imagining that our readers think of our listeners, I mean, think of us as like living in the in the ivory tower. Well, maybe Tim is cause he works at a college, but you know, we're, we're in the ivory tower and we're just reading all day long and we're just, you know, truth, beauty, goodness all day long. You know, that is not my life. I live my life in the trenches, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying so to, I, read I time. would,
2: I would be willing to guess that like, 95% of the people who you are Facebook friends with have not read more than 30 books in a year.
1: Yes. And those people that it's you're not friends close. Facebook friends with, it's not like a sampling of the American public by any means.
2: Come on.
0: I should not I, judge myself. It's I haven't cow. read no. that. No. I haven't <laughs> read.
2: Angelina, I didn't read that many.
0: Okay, that makes me feel somewhat better. But most of this was books that I, I read for for teaching or the podcast or research. It just, so, I mean, it just, it felt different because it wasn't a year in which I was, like, curling up with a book. I just didn't have the time.
1: Well, you of course were. you didn't. Of course you didn't. You had a you had a huge year. Tremendous it's, year uh, of change.
2: But, I mean, that's still called reading.
1: Yeah! <laughs> okay, I've got a question. I've got a question, David. Yeah. Before we get into kind of, like, you know, like, what were our favorite book books yeah. of the year or something yeah. like that, I kind of want to ask, what was your most obscure? obscure book of the year meaning like you read this book nobody else would have any interest in this book it's just like a particularly peculiar thing that you're really fascinated with can you think of what that book was for you guys
0: I can answer that one of two ways I I can go obscure in terms of like some scholarly obscure thing that I read and I can go obscure in the other way like in the Christian class world I'm guessing no one else read this bestseller that I read oh <laughs> so I could, I could, go, I could go either way like one is gonna make me sound really hoity-toity and smart and the other people are going to be like for real you read that
2: <laughs> the most uh yeah that's the, the most obscure is that that's what you the word you yeah. used yeah what would you say Angelina
0: if you want to say like obscure scholarly, it was a an art and tradition in Sir Gowan and the Green Knight by Larry Benson, and I read that twice this year.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was looking for. That's just, like, <laughs> you're just like nerding out on it all. So I bet.
0: What are you kidding? That was it was so amazingly good. Ah,
1: I bet. I believe a
0: it. A but seriously, find this bad boy. It was amazing. David, do you just, have one? I, I could uh, do a whole podcast just on that book. Not get in. <laughs>
2: Um, not like that, at least not that I read cover to cover. I don't read books like that cover to cover. Um, so my reading life is probably a little bit like I read, I read 27 books cover to cover. Um, many of which were children's books. Cause a lot of my reading time ended up being t- like to my kids. Um, yeah, of course. but, um, I read a lot of books that I didn't, that I read like, you know, a third of, or I'd read like long passages of to, for, for a purpose, you know, but I didn't read a book like that cover to cover. Um, but I've never done that in my life. So I don't, that, that sounds like a terrible waste of time. Um, but,
0: uh, I just died a little bit on the air.
2: (laughs) Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, actually that's not true. When I was in college, I would have had to, um, for research purposes and such, but, um, but that in that way my dad and I are in total agreement. We never read books like that cover to cover. Um huh. You kind of you
1: pick, you kind of cherry pick a little bit. Oh yeah, bit I'll there.
2: read like it'll take me five if I'm in, I don't know how long that book is. But if that book, say 300 pages, it might take me 2 years to read it and I'll read a chapter like a month or I'll be you know, I'll read a chapter here and then I'll go read something else. But it was an a, to it. It,
0: it was an exception. I mean, it was it was good. <laughs> and you know, most scholarly books are not good. I I'm not I not gosh, I don't want, I'm going to look like such a a dorky nerd. I mean, that you've looked like a dorky nerd since the
2: first episode. So just accept it. This
0: is true. This is true. I'm just, this is the role I have, you know, my whole life. I've been trying to live this role, but to answer
2: the question in my own way, the most obscure book that I read was probably a book called Ashenden, which is a, which is a sort of a novel, more like a collection of short stories or loosely tied short stories um, by mom somerset mom oh yeah and, and it was a early it's like the first real spy novel um, oh and like uh le carre's characters are based on it and then um ian it was one of ian fleming's favorite books and james bond is based on the character ashenden um and then um uh graham green also was like a was the one that like made this book popular and mom actually had been a spy uh during i think world war one era or pre world war one something like that david
0: yeah. loves his spy novels no,
2: yeah i do so like my uh that's where i i read i always read several spy novels in any in a given year so you'll find spy crime novels things like that that's like my low lower brow you know de- but I, it also depends like i read older ones um i don't read new releases so that's probably the most obscure nerd, nerd my version of nerdy nerdy breed yeah. this year what about you
1: Uh, it was called the best actors in the world. And it was about Shakespeare's acting company and the different actors that came through his acting company. There's the, and it it sounds like kind of like a, you know, something that more people will read than just me, but it's so, it's such a scholarly book. And the guy, the author, David Groti, I think is how it's pronounced. Would, would would he just did all of this research about what actors in Shakespeare's troops likely played what roles, and he, and he has these theories that are really fascinating. For example, um, if you look at Shakespeare's dramas, he has wonderful female characters who, of course, would have been played by a male, a young male. He has a string of wonderful female characters. Lady Macbeth being one of them, uh, Queen Anne from Richard III being another one. And then they just stop. He just stops writing really great female characters. He always wrote great male characters, but there's just kind of a string of great female characters. And the theory in the book is he had a really great boy actor that mm-hmm. played those roles, and the boy actor's voice broke and so Shakespeare couldn't cast him anymore in these female roles, so it's full of fascinating little stuff like oh. that. That
0: yeah, I you had heard that too. Actually, I, I would totally read that book because I'm always one of the things that fascinates me. That I tell my students um, when we study Shakespeare is that you know. His genius only increases when you consider all of the things he had to juggle. So, like, when you sit down to write a novel, you just have this vision in your head, and you just write whatever you want, right? Right. But Shakespeare literally had an acting troupe, and he knew who had – you know, this guy's a great swordsman. This guy's got a great singing voice, right? And he's he's incorporating all of that into Absolutely. his story. And then you have to keep in mind that, like, these guys all have egos. I mean, these are actors. No offense Absolutely. to him. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. But, right, they're, they're – <laughs> Have egos, and so, like, he's he's you know, you got to imagine Shakespeare is writing this, and somebody comes in and he's like, Uh, why does that guy have more lines than me? Um, I need more, I need to be mm-hmm. on stage more. Like, he's and so, like, he, he's telling a story, but he's also juggling all these personalities and needs and egos. And I mean, that amazes me that he yeah. could produce the work he is in, in that kind of situation.
1: You might like this book, Angelina The Best Actors in like, the World. It's really good.
0: I just wrote it down, I, that's totally up my alley. David's yawning. David has fallen asleep in this conversation. <laughs> I'm just, all
1: right, let's talk about our best I'm books, now let's talk about yeah. our best books. Okay, Sorry so, to
2: derail us with the most okay. obscure no, question. So, Actually, I had
0: something to say.
2: So, so here's what I want to do for the best for the quote, quote unquote best book section. I'm not going to ask you to like rank all the books that you read this year. Thank God. But we'll take turns, and I want you to share. Uh, I want you to have in, in mind three books that you really loved. That you would say to our readers, like, this is a book you should read. Um, okay. Oh and then wait, you,
0: now you're changing the question. I can, have to recommend it too.
2: And and you, well, you're okay. Fine, you don't have to recommend it, but <laughs> something that you we were excited by. And we're not. I'm not going to ask you for all three. We're going to do one at a time. So, uh, Tim, why don't you go first? What is one of the books that you read this year that you got the most excited about? that you um that, that hopefully you can recommend <laughs>
1: yeah i can definitely recommend the hillbilly elegy by jd vance
2: yeah that book has been i, getting I read some it press.
1: oh my goodness because it is absolutely wonderful um so the subtitle is a memoir of family and culture in crisis um I read this book in two nights, and it's probably – I don't know. It's like maybe 220 pages. It's not a short book. I read it in two nights because it was so riveting. Mm. Um, It's a story of a guy who ended up going to to Yale Law School, but he comes from – these are his words, not mine. uh, He's like, I'm a redneck. I'm a hillbilly. I'm trailer trash. And it's just kind of the story of him growing up in uh, Kentucky – in fact, not far from where my people are from in Kentucky, about 30 miles away from where my people are from. And then he moved and his family moved to Ohio. And it's kind of it's, – it's, the narrative is just about his own life and his own family. But as he kind of accomplishes many things on his way to Yale Law School, he's kind of constantly comparing the way that his family and his neighborhood <laughs> – Handled things like arguments and disagreement and education hmm. Hmm. compared with people who, um, you know, were living lives that were, by a worldly standard, very successful. They owned their own homes, they made a good salary, their kids went to, you know, great schools. I can't recommend this book highly enough Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance.
2: Yeah, I've been seeing a lot about it. Um, You know, like I read about the New York Times and a couple other places. I think maybe the New Yorker, and uh, it's been on social media all over the place. It's got a cool cover too.
1: He's got a great cover. Part of the reason the book is so good is that he is both. He is really loyal to his family. He can tell he loves his family and he loves where he came from. And he's also not afraid to be critical and just say, you know, these are the kind of behaviors that are keeping us where we are.
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah, Angelina, have you heard of that one?
0: I had heard about it. It's been getting a lot of buzz on the uh, social media. Yeah, but yeah. I, I did not read it. But I mean, I remember when Tim read it, he was really excited about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so you, what do you, what were you excited about? Give us one.
0: You know, I'm sitting here looking at my reading log and thinking, this is such a hard, you know, I, because that's the kind of feeling you have like the first time you read something right so i didn't really have that experience this year but um so i will i will i'm going to throw one out there though that um is very meaningful to me that i reread this year and and so okay i'm going to slip back into angelina's literary therapy here so when we started <laughs> i just feel like i'm speaking specifically to all these other bookish girls out there who are like i wonder what wisdom angelina can pass on to me right now um guys i'm sorry But uh, So when we started reading Pride and Prejudice, a lot of my friends and listeners started started making a big deal about the fact that I was Elizabeth Bennet, and I was looking for my Mr. Darcy, right? Well, I I didn't actually think that that was entirely accurate, and I was talking to my best friend about it, and she agreed that I was not Elizabeth Bennet. There were too many important differences to make me actually want a a Mr. Darcy. And so I said, no, 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 I'm not Elizabeth Bennet. I'm Harriet Vane. And as soon as she said that, she was like, oh, my God, you really are. You're Harriet Vane. And I said, that's right. I'm looking not for Mr. Dorsey. I'm looking for Lord Peter Whimsey. So I reread the Harriet Vane novels by Dorothy Sayers um, uh, after that conversation and um, and, and so if our listeners don't know, Dorothy Sayers, you know, the, the the brilliant translator of Dante, the Christian apologist, the, you know, the honorary inkling, um, the, the woman who gave us the lost tools of learning, uh, she was a detective novelist, and her books are fabulous. Um, they're just, they're so fun, but they're so insightful in their social critique, extremely insightful in their understanding of male and female relationships. Um, Harriet Vane. The character is actually just a thinly veiled uh, portrait of Dorothy Sayers herself, and Lord Peter Whimsey was the character she created, which was her ideal man. And so, th- the series of books in which those two characters interact— their their meeting, their courtship, their relationship—is uh, just a ton of fun for me to read, and I relate to it very strongly. So, you know, if our if our listeners are looking for a really fun read with some just Dead on social criticism and, uh, and, and you know, kind of smart girl guy books. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dorothy Sayers' detective novels, there's that, that, where you need to go. Most that's of great. them are pretty lighthearted. Her one dark one is Murder Must Advertise, which is one of my favorites.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what yeah, a yeah. great title! Yeah, Murder well, Must she, Advertise.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, she's great. She was in advertising, and so boy, um, that one's like her darkest book, like in terms of really critiquing that lost generation. Up the 20s and kind of the nihilistic lives they were living.
2: Maybe we should do, for fun, maybe we should do a uh, Dorothy Sayers mystery novel here on close reads. I bet people would enjoy that. That's a great
0: idea. I bet people, I think that's a great idea. I thought about uh, suggesting that when we were kind of tossing around titles.
2: It could go, you know, those are books that you can read pretty quickly, but you could have a lot of fun really breaking down what she's doing and just enjoying the story. Because you Mm -hmm. you can enjoy a quote-unquote simple story but also, you know, really look at the craft because it, the truly great writers who can write stories like that, like the, the things that go into the craft and the artistry are, are really remarkable and be really fun to talk about. We'll have to, it would.
0: It. And, you know, and, and her detective novels are a lot like P.G. Woodhouse novels in, in the sense that you kind of have to read them all to really, you know, grasp the world that she's creating, you know? Oh, yeah. I feel like anybody who reads just one novel is going to get such a skewed view of who Lord Peter Whimsey is because it's who he is over the course of all the books uh. and the way that he changes. That's so fascinating.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll have to put so up, that's my recommendation. we're going to put up a poll on the, on the, the group, the, the Facebook group for close reads. And we'll, we'll give you guys a few options to, to help us pick what we're going to read. And we'll include, um, murder must advertise on that list. And, um, we'll see what happens with the with the poll there. Uh so one of my th- they Yeah, yeah, what's yours David? One of my books is um is a book by uh, one of the most accomplished film critics working right now. His name is AO Scott and he is uh, I believe he is still the film critic at the new york times and he teaches at wesleyan college um and he wrote a book this year called better living through criticism how to think about art pleasure beauty and truth and wow it's kind of a defense of um of of criticism like that that criticism is an act of creation like that that the critic is an artist too um and so he gets into a lot of that and like and and like you can't say that it, you know he he basically takes to task the idea that a critic is just a failed artist and stuff like that um and uh but he talks about how like true criticism we it's not it can't be with the way we the way we live right now like this like the posture of criticism the posture of the critic that like is so rampant um you know, in social media where we're all ready to just criticize everything. Right. Like that, there's yes. that it's much deeper than that. And that that's what makes yes. it an art. Like the true criticism is thoughtful and contemplative and slow to, slow to react. And, um, and that's not great for the 24 hour news cycle and all that kind of stuff. But, but when done right, criticism is a truly artistic, um, enlightening, like, uh, mm-hmm. c- creative endeavor. So that's a really, mm-hmm. really cool book. I recommend that another good cover. Um, yeah, it's probably... I don't know if it's on soft cover yet. It came out this year, so it, it's like...
0: Can like, you say the name again?
2: Yeah, so it's Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. And this guy's <laughs> really well-read. There's lots of, like... You know, there's lots of classical stuff in it, lots of... You, know, he, you can tell that he has read a lot of literature. It's like, he's not just a guy who who just, like, watches, you know, movies all the time. And, of course, if you've ever read his film criticism, one of the reasons he is the most successful and beloved film critic working is that he is so knowledgeable about other art, other like, other art forms, and he can, and he uh, can bring that to his film criticism. So, like, his film is, criticism is, like, scholarly and, and popular at the same time.
1: When a new movie comes out and you're curious about whether or not you should go see it, do you go look up Scott's, that's his name, right, A.O. Scott? Yeah. Do you look up A.O. Scott's review and does before you go see the movie?
2: So I have like a like for TV and movie I have like three or four critics that I turn to at all times that like I trust kind of implicitly. Yeah, and he's, yeah. he's definitely yeah. one of them. But that doesn't mean that like if he re- re- reviews a movie negatively, I'm not going to go see it. But if he reviews a movie and there's like certain things he says about it, then I might I might skip out on it or not go to the theater. But I right. have little kids and I go to the theater like only to see Star Wars, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right it's, kind of, it's like an event it has to be like a real real thing right yes but yeah I, like i'll go back and read his stuff on the movie that like if i watched a movie and i want to learn more about it or think more about it i'll go find his his um his stuff um okay let's let's go around to another one now tim what's another one that you that you were excited about this year
1: the righteous mind by jonathan hate h-a-i-d-t
2: yeah i think you mentioned that on this show before right
1: I think I did, because that was
2: a few weeks
1: ago. Oh my goodness. Okay, so the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And let me just tell you. um, So I live in Eugene, Oregon, as you guys know, which is like a little bit left of left, you know, culturally speaking, politically speaking. And I come back to Atlanta and North Georgia, and it's pretty conservative. And so I kind of am always trafficking in these two worlds. And this book is just so helpful at understanding why. Let me, let me um, cast this the right way. When I listen to my friends in Eugene talk about the presidential election, the things that they burn about um, – are so different just the questions that are being asked are so fundamentally different than the questions that are being asked when I come back when I come home to Atlanta it's not and each side um looks at the other side and says how could you not ask the question that i'm asking right And so, of course, because each of them are asking different sorts of questions and have different sort of what Jonathan Haidt would call um, moral impulses or moral – they have differently shaped moral palates. That even before a discussion begins, um, all of the sort of taste centers of the left and the right are completely misaligned for any sort of discussion. So Jonathan Haidt's book is – a book about, it's a book of social psychology. He's a trained social psychologist. And he is an avowed secular liberal. Um, and he just, <laughs> he would probably be the first to say, I just did not understand why conservatives thought the way that they thought until he moved to India and he was like, oh, I'm the weird one here. The world is so not like me. And so he has just been pursuing um, since that time kind of an inquiry into what makes um, – how to describe it – what are kind of the absolute moral impulses that all human beings have? And I use the word impulses very specifically. He um, thinks that everyone has these six kind of impulses, but liberals highlight these few conservatives high, highlight a different grouping, and because they highlight different impulses, um, when it comes time to, to actually discuss, like is this be is this uh, legislation good or bad, can't even really have a discussion. It's preframed
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, from the beginning that you can't even really have a discussion. He's not so pessimistic as that, but that's kind of his starting point. Hmm. If you, so I'll just say one more thing. If you are um, really entrenched in your viewpoint and you cannot understand how someone would not share your viewpoint, I would go farther than to say you ought to read this book. I might even say it's kind of like a moral duty to read a book like this.
2: Hmm. Wow. So then Angelina, should you read it? (laughs)
0: I mean, No, Tim and I talk about this stuff all the time That's speaking my language I always have the sense that the two sides are just talking past each other And not using words in the same way And presuming things about the other side Which Mm -hmm. gets to, you know, Tim's thing about uh, They're asking different sets of questions And I think that they each presume that the other is answering the question But the the truth is the, the other side is not thinking about that question at all They're not disagreeing with you That's just not even on their radar to think like that For both sides.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, I think what's good, what's really good about this book, um, is that Jonathan Haidt—you can hear it in the Mm subtitle—why good people are Uh divided by politics and religion. um, It's—he may have kind of like a political viewpoint that he's coming from, but he's like, man, they're good people on both sides, Um, and he really constantly—he treats his inquiry with a great deal of generosity and open-mindedness and kindness
0: it sounds like the kind of book that is really needed right now
1: right? oh goodness when yes, after I'm this election
0: know. you've got people on both sides Peep, on each side of this election, looking at the other side like they've grown another head.
1: Absolutely, all, like, e- right.
0: each side is completely incomprehensible to the other, and that—that mm. that is far more concerning to me than the fact that we disagree. I don't know that we disagree. I don't. I don't know that we have enough common discussion to say that we disagree. You know? Right. <laughs> we're just foreigners to each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We we we're two like nationalities inhabiting the same country.
0: Right. Mm. Which well, was always something that the founders worried about. Hmm being so big you know
2: yeah well for the sake of time we should move on um this is not close reads about one book this is close reads about six nine books today yeah i took over (laughs) there david so you're good you're good you're good uh angelina what's what's your next one
0: all right so again keeping with my theme of the year of the reread um this was a book i've probably read for my seventh and eighth time this year something like that um but this was the first year that I actually fell in love with this book. Like at huh. the end of teaching it, I thought It only took eight I, times. I, I love this. It only took eight times, right? And maybe when I say the book, everybody's gonna be like, oh, I know I know why it took so long. Um this was the year I fell in love with Beowulf. Oh,
2: yeah. oh really? Yeah, yes. that makes sense.
0: It was one of these books that it was like, eh, I'm teaching it because it's, you know, historically important. And then it was like, well, I can appreciate what went into the making of this. I can appreciate what it- what he's trying to do But this was the first time At the end That I thought Oh I love him
1: you <laughs> fell in I love, love this
0: story Absolutely And part of it was that I used a new translation This year
1: Can, um, I, can I guess What your new translation was
0: Oh I don't think It's going to be hard Go ahead
1: Seamus Haney
0: No that's the first One I ever used
1: Tolkien Nope No who Who was it
0: Burton Raffel
1: Ah uh,
2: yeah Okay Duh
0: Burton Raffel <laughs> And uh And And his I had read You a have review a connection To said, him no. Well, I do, but that's part of why it was the last one I picked up. Okay, right? Because I did not Burton Raffel, um, the, the the famous scholar, uh, was my professor in graduate school, and so yes, I tr- When it comes to all matters literary, he's my go to authority, and I and I trust him uh, for criticism and interpretation and stuff. Um, but for a weird kind of counterintuitive reason, I resisted his translation of Beowulf because I knew him. I don't know if that makes sense, but I don't know. Sure, it just it didn't, sense. It didn't seem as fancy to me as Seamus Haney. So I resisted it for a long time. And then it just kept coming back on my radar. And I read where people were saying not only was it uh, one of the most accurate ones, but that it, the poetry was just a work of art in its own right. So I, I gave it a shot and just fell in love with the poetry and fell in love with the book. And then Brian Phillips had asked Asked on Facebook, you know, what's the best Beowulf translation, so I put my two cents in there for Burton and Raphael, and gotten very much the same response as, like, David did, ah, but you know him. Uh, but then Wes Callahan said, no, I'm with Angeline on this, I think that's the best one. So Ma'am, I felt very I'm, validated.
1: I am making a change, because I do our Beowulf discussion at Gutenberg, and I've used Seamus Haney, and I think Seamus Haney is the only translation that I've read of Beowulf, so I might, I am might make a switch here, Angelina. You are oh, shaping the there minds you of you young go. people as you speak.
0: <laughs> and this is like the four dollars Signet classic too. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, but what I have heard about the Seamus Haney translation is that it's a really good Seamus Heaney poem. It may not oh, be.
1: Oh, really.
0: So Right. Um, Whereas Dr. Raphael, he set he literally set the standard for translation. He he invented the whole school of thought on how how, where how do you sort of harmonize the need for poetry and poetic expression and the need for an accurate translation? And what does it even mean to have an accurate translation? So he really set the standard for that. And uh, it's just it's just beautiful, beautiful language beautiful poetry and uh so i really do think that had a a large uh role in my in my finally coming to love it i just it was one of those things where i was just letting the words roll around in my mouth and and mm. i taught it twice i taught it twice i taught it once in my medieval class and once in the Cersei sur- online intensive and that was the response i got from my students as well it was a new tra- translation for most of them and many of them were teachers who had been teaching beowulf a long time and they all just expressed delight with this particular translation and really really enjoyed it mm,
1: mm. That's me. I am. I am making a note of that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I think Beowulf is a challenging book for a lot of people, and so no know, doubt, no finding doubt. the right <laughs> translation makes a big difference. Okay, so David, how about you? Yes, Another one. Um, oh, another one of my, my books is written by one of my favorite film critics, and that is a book called. How to Survive the Apocalypse: Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and oh, Politics yeah. at the End of the World oh, yeah. by Alyssa Wilkinson and Robert Jostra. Now, I wrote about this book for Think Christian, and I interviewed Alyssa uh, here on the Cersei Podcast Network. So, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know what, if that affects this choice, but I really love this book. Um, it's it's cultural criticism pop culture criticism, film criticism, TV, I mean, literature and TV criticism, it's all that all wrapped into one. But the basic gist of the book is it's kind of a take on Charles Taylor, um, who is a Catholic political philosopher who's, you know, kind of been pretty popular for a long time in that world, award-winning, um, very scholarly in a lot of his work. Um, so, you know, probably only a handful of our readers, you know, have have heard, you know, heard of him. Um, yeah,
1: Charles Taylor's *A Secular Age* is seven hundred yeah. pages long, I believe, of dense social philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So,
2: so that's that. Like, it's a take on it. So, they're taking Joustra and Wilkinson are taking a look at Taylor's book *A Secular Age*. You know, in, in, in that book, he's kind of presenting a survey of what he defines as secular, and he argues mm-hmm. that secular culture is. It's not that God is not there in the world. Like it's, it's not about the absence of God, but it's more about an, what he calls an anthropocentric attitude towards religious life, which is which values, you know, like individual choice above everything else. Yeah. So they're taking they're taking this idea and then they're looking at it um, within the context of our pop culture, and they're saying that essentially the apocalypse is actually already upon us, and that these works of pop culture are. Are like, evidence of it having come. So they look at shows like Mad Men. They look at um, things like Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead and Battlestar Galactica and Breaking Bad and things like that, and they're saying that that those, these shows are, like, there are collective social anxieties aired on primetime is the line they use. Uh. Mm. Um, And that those shows exist precisely because of that anthropocentric perspective that, um, that Taylor is... Taylor's kind of laying out, so so they do a really interesting job of just looking at these shows. It's a really fun book. Um, they're also pretty well versed in um, Christian culture, particularly like the evangelical subculture, and so there's a lot of stuff in there about um, like uh, different elements within those cultures. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really it's a really fun, b- but um, but also really smart, really uh, thoughtful book about the kind of things that are representative of our pop culture and what that means about us and like how to interpret them and and how to approach them. and um, But not in an overly scholarly way. It's it's not a terribly long book, but it's a really, uh, really good book. Really fun book, especially if you I like remember the shows.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And if you head over to like somewhere back in, I want to say June, I think I interviewed Alyssa and then maybe May or June when the book came out. And then I also wrote about it for Think Christian back way back then as well. So. Um, my, my that piece was of- a
0: book that I had really hoped to read this year. I need to, I need to make a point of that. It's really it sounds really interesting.
2: Yeah, it's say hard. the title again. The title and the authors again, David. Okay, so the book is called "How to Survive the Apocalypse: Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World," and it's by Al- Alyssa Wilkinson and Robert Joustra. Alyssa Wilkinson has she teaches at King's College in New York, and that she also was the chief she like an editor over at Christianity today and she film critic, And now she's the, she's a writer for vox.com.
0: Yeah. I didn't realize she taught at King's college. I got a friend that goes there yeah, yeah. Have to ask her if she's taking her classes.
2: Yep. Um, okay. So Tim, your last one.
1: My last one is, and this is a little bit of a nerd one. Um, a Jesuit off Broadway behind the scenes with faith, doubt, forgiveness and Forgiveness by James Martin. So I'm just going to say the title again, A Jesuit Off-Broadway, Behind the Scenes with Faith, Doubt, for- and Forgiveness. So it's a book. <laughs> Here's the, one of my favorite playwrights. In fact, he just won the Pulitzer for uh, drama this year. Stephen Adley Gerges. He was writing a play. The play was called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. And he wanted um, a kind of like theological advisor to come in and make sure that the play that he was writing was like theologically really well informed. The play was basically putting Judas Iscariot on trial again. And it was asking all sorts of like these big questions about how could you, how can you um, call Judas guilty? If he was kind of preordained to play the role of the betrayer to the son of God. And so Stephen Adley Gerges, the playwright, asked James Martin, a Jesuit priest from New York City, to come in and serve as the theological advisor to this crew of really super decorated, top tier actors. Um, wow. Oh, it is So good. It is so good. So the actors – so it was directed by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, Sam Rockwell played the role of Judas. Um, And so what it is is Stephen Adley Gerges, the playwright, is well-known for staging all of his plays in urban areas and among, like, the downtrodden and the – just people who are – living in the worst, poorest circumstances in the United States. Um, So can you imagine him casting St. Monica, the mother of Augustine, and making her, I think she is a witness for the defense of Judas Iscariot, and she's played by this very robust black woman. She's playing kind of like the role of a lawyer, and she has the coarsest mouth you can possibly imagine so that's what his that's what Stephen Adley Gerges' plays are about they're really thoughtful really kind of unvarnished spiritual quests among his characters um, and I would recommend them please let me finish the whole sentence I would recommend <laughs> them highly to anyone who wants to have like a frank discussion uh, about like how do people like what do we think about God and what do we think about guilt and sin if, if you can tolerate like extremely coarse language? Don't read this in front of your middle schoolers without reading it first yourself and kinda of like, yeah, because the language is very rough, but the, the content is extraordinary. Great book. Great book.
2: All right, we gotta move on quickly here. So I'm gonna not to cut you short, but I wanna move over no, no, no. quickly over to Angelina.
0: All right. Well, I'm I'm going to choose something from the complete opposite end of the spectrum, right? If if Tim was going nerdy and scholarly, I'm I'm going to go bestseller right now. Okay, <laughs> I'm I'm going to throw my curveball that I mentioned before the show, and then Tim wanted to know what was my curveball going to be, and said, No, I want I want your on-air reaction. So here we go. In <laughs> a year in which I read Northrop Frye's An Anatomy of Criticism twice, and it's got to be the densest, most difficult scholarly work I've ever read. Okay, in the year in which I read that twice, I'm going to I'm going to give this as my third book. Ready? You ready for this? Yes. Modern Romance by Aziz Ansari. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is this a curveball? That's
2: great, Aziz Ansari of Parks and Rec and Parks and Rec
0: and, and hilarious stand-up and um,
2: although not suitable for work, <laughs> just to be clear, his, his right. stand-up don't watch it with your kids or at work.
0: Oh goodness no, goodness no. Um, so. Uh, yeah, this will be a highly qualified um, kind of discussion of, of this book. So um, Aziz Ansari worked with a sociologist to sort of try to make sense of the modern dating landscape, particularly dating in the digital age. And, uh, you know, considering all the things we talked about with Pride and Prejudice, the things that we touched on there and, and how much the landscape has changed, I thought a lot about the things that he said in in this book. Um, it's very interesting because he has no agenda right? He's not, he's not trying to prove something. He really is just trying to understand. It's, it's very investigative. Um, now, it, it, it's not coming from a Christian conservative perspective. Um, he's not a traditionalist, meaning that he's not, he's not coming in here presuming that the way things have always been done is necessarily the best way. On the other hand, He's not uh, against tradition. His parents uh, married in India in an arranged marriage and had a happy union. So you're talking about the most traditional upbringing that you know mm-hmm. he, he could have been exposed to. He just is is trying to navigate what is dating in in the in the digital age, and I, I found it truly fascinating. And I thought it really challenged um a, a lot of assumptions. And um you know one of the things you know, I'm in the dating world, right? And my friends who have been married for some time even even like my baby brother who's only been married 10 years right the the landscape has changed so dramatically that mm-hmm. the advice he gives me is like it's like i'm talking to my great grandparents like i'm just <laughs> i'm all I, i'm serious i'm always like you have no clue like this is a he doesn't understand that this is a universe in which the primary mode of communication is texting right um and and what does online dating do to 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 the whole landscape i mean it's just it's just vastly vastly different um, and, and, uh, so one of the things he talks about in, in this book that I was just fascinated with, um, was an idea that Ken Myers brought up at a Circe conference, like in 2006 or something like that, about how from a consumer standpoint, our unlimited options for the things that we can mm. choose to buy, create incredible anxiety in us. And so Aziz Ansari explores that same idea in terms of dating, like, so if, if, he said, You know, it's no longer, we don't live in the world anymore where you, you just marry the cutest girl in your neighborhood, right? And then you just make the best of it because mm. that's literally all the options you had, right? Um, we live in, in the world of online dating, which means you literally have unlimited possible romantic partners, right?
1: Mm.
0: And, and he talks about the anxiety that creates and how, you know, how could you ever pick someone? What if you just haven't looked hard enough, right? How how can you ever make that choice? And it was right. just fascinating as he kind of wrestled with all of that. And one of the things, um, and David, you're just gonna have to stop me when I when I go too much on onto this because I really found this to be a very interesting book. Um, one of the things that he he um now I've forgotten what I was gonna say, but uh oh, oh crud! A what particularly was
1: fascinating insight that he had.
0: Yes, and oh, it had something to do with Pride and Prejudice. Urgh. Please edit all this. Um Man. um um um.
1: Angelina, what a fascinating side-by-side comparison of uh, courtship in Pride and Prejudice in dating in that book.
0: It really was. It really was. Like so he he interviews people who married the cute girl in the neighborhood, you know, like 50-60 years later. And while, you know, in terms of statistics, you would say these people had successful marriages, what he found was that they weren't really personally that satisfied in the relationship Mm. um and and that um oh i know what i was gonna say okay so one of my little pet issues is that people who are married and not in the dating pool will often make these very generic condemning statements about um the romantic life of our country right now and they'll say things like oh you know people aren't getting married it's because they have a low view of marriage or they just want to uh you know, immerse themselves in the sexual revolution. Nobody wants to settle down, and and we have a distressing low view of marriage. And they conclude that this is why people are not getting married at a young age. Um, this has not been my experience at mm. all, and and this book really confirmed that with the statistics to back it up, which was I found um, exciting. Um, rather, um, what what we're seeing is that young people today are taking marriage so seriously, right, that they can't. They are almost paralyzed. They can't make a choice because what if they're making the wrong choice? Like they do not want to get a divorce. They want one love for a lifetime. But there are so many other factors contributing, like huh. like the fact that you have unlimited choices. How do I know that I'm making the right choice, right? And so um, there's just this kind of this deep longing for that special, lifelong, romantic love, that marriage that's going to last forever, and this incredible fear that they're not going to be able to find it. Yeah. And, and it creates this very interesting angst. Um, he concludes in, uh, well, you know, he talks about that people have different sets of expectations for marriage now than they did in the past. Um, namely that they're looking for this close emotional intimacy, this soulmate. Um, you know, I think we saw in Jane Austen that you, people wanted affection and, and a love match. Um, but, 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 the idea that your spouse is your best friend—that's a—that's a particularly modern idea, right? That's not something yeah. that Aziz Ansari's parents would have thought of as as, as, as spouses, as as best friends. Um, so people want that, which makes it much more difficult for people to find that. But then he concludes that um, while it's much more difficult to find it, that the payoff is much greater hmm. in terms of the satisfaction that people can get from their relationships and their marriages now.
1: Interesting. Um,
0: but I found the whole thing very interesting, and and. Um I, I imagine it's a sort of book that would push a lot of our listeners out of their comfort zones because it would it would challenge I think a, a lot of um kind of the commonly held wisdom especially all the millennial bashing that I refuse to participate in and take great offense at.
2: <laughs> Good for you. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: That's um... also very funny.
2: <laughs> I bet it's funny. Yeah.
0: No surprise.
2: We should say caveat, though. Like some of his stuff is definitely like not endorsed by Cersei. The Cersei. Oh no,
0: no, yes, and I'm not even giving it like a total thumbs up endorsement because obviously, you know, he 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 has no problems with people living together. You know, he just he's observing it from a sociological standpoint. He's not he's not pushing an agenda. It's really it's really just an investigative, and he's asking questions and he's just telling you what he's observed.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. So my last book, since we gotta. Get moving along here. Is I'm going to go novel. I'm also going to go a new novel. Uh, We we assume sort of that most of you um, are hopefully reading classics regularly. Um, So I wanted to give you a couple options of things that have come out recently that I think stack up fairly well. Um, And from that, you know, the 2016 released novel that I thought was the best, or at least that I that I read that was the best. It's called The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead and I believe this book I believe just won the National Book Award something some prize like that. Um and it is about it's a slave narrative. Um it's about a slave on a cotton plantation in Georgia who, you know, not surprisingly is lives in a really, you know, terrible circumstances. Um it's kind of a a coming of age novel in some ways. Um she's coming into adulthood um and she ends up Well, to short, you know. Long story short, she ends up on the road, uh, running away, and she ends up on the underground underground railroad, um, where different people take her in. And um, but 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 the twist is that the underground railroad in this novel is actually an underground railroad, so it's Mm -hmm. kind of a historical context novel, but that has also got a bit of a sci-fi element to it or a fantasy element, where there's on there's actually train stations underground. And they're trying to hide where the locations are and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it's, it's very, it's got this very dreamy, uh, lyrical thing going on. Um, really great prose. It's a little bit brutal at times because it is a slave narrative. If you have, if you have any knowledge or have ever read any of the slave narratives, you know, dating back to the 1800s, even then you'll know that there's, there's a lot of troubling stuff in those. So this isn't different than that, but it's also a a tale about this young woman who's really courageous um really um really hopeful um and and even where it's like um harrowing in a way um it's it's um it's also hopeful and it's really powerful and um especially i think given some of the you know the the continued um trouble you know with race relations in this country um It's a novel that I think is really really worth reading, you know, at this kind of place and time in our in our country's history. So The Underground Railroad by The Underground Railroad, that's a hard one to say, by Colson Whitehead is is my third book that I got excited about this year.
1: I just marked it on my goodreads to read list. And I'm gonna go back and like mark all of the books that we've talked about on my Goodreads list.
2: I figure we had to have at least one piece of fiction on there like one yeah novel already, right, right 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 but we talk about well, fiction. beowulf
0: was fiction
2: <laughs> well i was gonna say other than that's why i said novel um but i was gonna i was just about to say other than beowulf but the uh you know we talk about fiction primarily on this uh on this show so you know having some books of social and cultural criticism i think are really 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 good to have on there so okay quickly hey, we,
1: should, David, we should list all of the um, books the nine books that we've discussed on the facebook page
2: yeah, we can do that. I'll put it on the show notes as well. So, okay, quickly, uh, what is one book that you read? You know, Don't give me a lot of reasons why, but what is one book that you read this year that you were excited about that you were disappointed by?
1: Oh, gosh.
2: Or that didn't live up to the, what people have said about it, or that you just, for whatever reason, it wasn't all you would ho- all that you had hoped.
0: I actually have an answer to that. Can I go while well, Tim yeah. thinks? Yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. Okay, so one of, the, one of my 2015 new authors that I get introduced to by Cindy Rollins was Josephine Tay. And I read her first book, which was about uh, Richard III, and loved it. So this year I read her other book, Miss Prim Disposes, and it was a yawn fest. <laughs> Did not like it <laughs> at all. It was a detective novel, which I love, but she's no Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> Jim- and now everyone's going to like give me hate mail. Just didn't dig it.
2: Tim, do you have one?
1: I read this terrible novel called water for elephants by Sarah Gruen. Ugh. Like, oh, why did I finish it?
2: Yeah. Why did you finish <laughs> it?
1: <laughs> because I have this thing, like if I get, you know, halfway through, I just feel like oh, I'm the duty same to finish it. It's, and it, yeah, it was just not worth the time.
2: So, um, my, how about tro- you, David? Did you have one? Yeah. My choice would be, is a children's book that, that I read to the boys. Um, And by an author whose other books I think are great. And this is a book that does have a pretty high reputation. But I was really disappointed by The Trumpet of the Swan. The Trumpet of the Swan. I've never read that. So, you know, E.B. White wrote Stuart Little and um, Charlotte's Web. And I know The Trumpet of the Swan has, like, it's got a pretty decent reputation. And it's not that I thought it was terrible. So I'm looking at it now. Four stars on Goodreads, for example. 4.05 average. So people love it. But it's not that I thought it was terrible, but I thought that it was, it, it did not meet my expectations. And interestingly, um, you know, like I think one of my kids liked it and one didn't. But, um, you guys there? Yes. So that's the one that. So that's the one that didn't meet my expectations. I'm probably going to yeah. also get some some inc- some incredulous <laughs> responses to that one on on the old social media. Um. So be it. So be it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that and the hate mail I'm going to get for recommending Aziz Ansari. I'm not really recommending it. Just
2: You're just explaining a, why it excited you. Yeah. 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 So we are expecting that you, who, those of you who are listening to this show are using some discretion when we talk about books like this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it's certainly. not a
2: book that you're going to love or that you don't want to subject yourself to, <laughs> then by all means, don't do so. Right. Um,
0: well, and don't be scrolling through Netflix. And be like, oh wait, Aziz Ansari? Is it that who Angelita was talking about? Yeah. I cannot be held responsible for the man's stand-up. I'm talking about a published book on the bestseller list. Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right. Well, uh, this has been fun. Little recap of the, uh, the our year in reading. Um, we should find a way to post somewhere uh, some of the other books that we all liked, and so people can see them. And but we but we would also love to hear from the listeners. So please do go over to the Facebook group. And uh, and let us know some of the things that you're reading. Um, let us know what some of the surprises are, the the, the disappointments. You know, all the things we talked about here. Um, and if you've ever read and sees Aziz Ansari's book and um, you know, didn't uh, didn't care for it, you can let Angelina know. Hey, side note. So Graham, who works with me here, he's our you know graphic designer. He is a photographer, and he was he does some um side work doing like land like um stuff for real like real estate. So like if someone's trying to sell their house, he'll come in and take pic- like really good pictures of them so that the houses look good. So he does some really nice houses sometimes. And he goes to this house and, um, it's a nice house, you know, outside of Charlotte, he's taking photos. Um, and he meets the people who, uh, own the house and they're, they're Indian. There's an Indian couple. And, uh, they're really nice and he's talking to them and, and then they're, they start talking about their family and how one kid's a doctor and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, yeah, well my other side, he's, he's on a show called parks and recreation. He's an actor and a comedian. His name's Aziz Ansari. <laughs> so Graham, so Graham like stopped at his tracks and said, Oh, I love, I love, you know, parks and rec. And so he, he's uh so he got to meet Aziz Ansari's parents uh, who apparently that's lived awesome. here in Charlotte. So that's great. Yeah. That's great. So he
0: talks about a lot in the book.
2: Yeah. 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 So, uh, Little side story there before we head out, but um, just want to say also quickly thank you to everyone who donated this month. We we met our goal of ten thousand oh, dollars and then some. So that's actually we, we raised close to fourteen thousand, um, and that um, will get matched twice by our by our uh, two generous donors who are going to match you know the ten thousand. So we had that's a great. very successful fundraising campaign thanks to everyone who's who donated and who's been helping spread the word. It's it helps out so much as we as we enter the new year and you know. It makes it so we can do things like this more often. Um, Angelina and Tim, any final thoughts before we, uh, before we head my out final for, for thought 2016? Is that,
0: okay, so my final thought, which will surprise no one, is that even though you wouldn't let me say it, my favorite book I read this year was J. Crow*.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Tim, final thought.
1: Keep reading.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, wow, you had to get all smart. <laughs> <laughs> You had to get all bumper sticker on us.
1: I, right. did, I did. I I went all bumper sticker on us. It's true.
2: <laughs> well, my final thought is thanks to everyone for listening. It's been a good year. Uh, thank you for joining us here on the Podcast Network. And Happy New Year from all of us here at Cersei and on the Podcast Network. Uh, we look forward to many more shows in the new year. We're going to be recording Close Reads once a week. Coming up in, in the new year on Fridays at 2 p.m. So the shows will. Then this is air. bound
0: to improve my yeah. numbers for next year, yeah. my reading numbers.
2: <laughs> or make them worse. the uh, <laughs> The shows will air then on Monday of each week. So you'll have a weekly show from us. We'll be with you weekly. That may that'll be adjusted. You know, if we're traveling or something comes up. But for the most part, that's the goal to record every week. So you have some regular regular programming every week. Um, and uh, you know, we look forward to ongoing conversations, ongoing reading, and uh, ongoing arguments, of course. Um, <laughs> this means course.
0: that our listeners are going to have really clean houses because, from what people tell me, they listen to us while they clean. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. This your is ki-
0: unfathomable to me. Your,
2: your kitchens and bathtubs are going to be inc- are going to be sparkling. Um, but you <laughs> it's know, our that's gift to you. That's the goal. Exactly. That's the goal. All right. Well, that's it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Close Reads here on the Cersei Podcast Network. Uh, happy New Year, and we look forward to talking to you in two thousand seventeen.